Welcome to the Sensibly Speaking Podcast. This is Chris Shelton, your host. Thank you very much for inviting me into your home again this week. And as you can see, I am joined by guest Alex Barnes-Ross. Now, Alex came to me a few weeks ago, and we have had correspondence because he is a former Scientologist and a former staff member of the Church of Scientology of London. Alex hails from the United Kingdom. And we're going to get into his backstory and and all the deets and uh, information about his story. It is quite interesting because, um, and the reason I was kind of interested in in putting him on a microphone and having this conversation in, in, with all of y'all is because he had uh, some unique experiences that we haven't covered or covered in a lot of detail on this channel having to do with um, getting on staff or getting involved in an org and then getting kicked out. And of course, we've talked about disconnection and getting declared SP, but there's some little bits and pieces to how this stuff works that are demonstrated in this story that I think you're going to find kind of interesting, as well, of course, as some of the other experiences Alex had as a staff member and as a Scientologist, because he got in, got kicked out, got back in, and then got out again. So how does that kind of thing happen? Well, Alex, welcome to my show. Uh, thank you very much for agreeing to be part of this. And uh, thank you for, for having me. I think I wanted to start just with a thanks, you know, for, for everything that you do. And there's, you know, more and more content coming out there about Scientology from, from insiders. And, you know, your channel particularly for my recovery process has been really um, helpful. Just hearing lots of people's stories that might not be front page news, but having been someone that was inside it just hearing that a you're not alone and other people have gone through similar things it's that in itself is really helpful so firstly thank you but um yeah i think i agree my story is interesting because i don't come from a scientology background i'm not a second generation scientologist or anything like that um i grew up in a kind of secular family my parents aren't religious i did go to you know a church school um but only because it had good results and it was local rather than it being a religious thing so i come from a pretty non-religious background so how i ended up getting into scientology and yeah as you say joining staff being kicked out joining again being kicked out again and all at a very young age um it's it's an interesting one so yeah yeah, i'm excited to share my story publicly for the first time (laughs) awesome well i like i said i'm very happy to give you a platform here and i think that this will be an interesting story for everybody and and of course, you're very welcome for all the content I put out. Uh, that is the whole point of this channel is to help people. You know, one of the major, uh, there's sort of three purposes for this channel, which is my own recovery and the documenting of that, the education of the public at large about coercive control and destructive cults, and to help people recover. And uh, any bit I can do to assist that, I am, I, I'm very, it just gives me warm, fuzzy feelings when people tell me that the work is doing what it's supposed to. So, so thank you for that. I think that's why I kind of want to speak up as well. You know, I, my journey in Scientology was sort of 2011 to 2014-ish, give or take. So we're, we're quite a few years on from that now. And I haven't actually really spoken about my story to many people anyway like this is certainly the first time i've spoken about my story um in any great great detail with anybody um and so i think the reason i'm doing it is just because 
I think there's lots of stories and people talking about Scientology and the Sea Org in the States. Um, and there's not so much about, A, London and the UK Scientology side of things. There's bits and bobs, but there's not too much. And secondly, you know, the journey of someone who didn't grow up in Scientology that joined um, and kind of got recruited into it. And yeah, that's that's one of the reasons I want to share this story is because there's not too much content out there about kind of regular average person that's just been sucked in and spat out <laughs> exactly um, exactly in fact so it's yeah. interesting because the very first interview i ever did with an ex-scientologist was a, a friend here in in colorado who he's he's not here now but he was from london he was a staff in the church of scientology of london but he was second gen he was raised in it he did go to greenfields the the scientology school he he did hang around St. Hill. Your story, vastly different from his. And yet, and all the time from him to now, I've never had a chance to interview anybody from the UK as, as that I, who had the UK experience, I should say. I've interviewed, you know, John Sweeney and some other people. But this will be interesting. This will be very interesting. So let's go ahead and get started with this. Um, how, let's go to the beginning. How, let's just walk through it. How'd you... Uh, it, how, did, yeah. how did Scientology come into your life? I think my story in itself starts off a bit strange um, because the first sort of instance of knowledge I had of Scientology was actually the BBC Panorama documentary that John Sweeney and so on did about how bad Scientology is. And I watched that as a teenager. I would have been sort of 14, 15 or something at that age and kind of watched it. And I thought, wow, this is, you know, there's a lot of bad stuff being said about this organization and I'm sort of quite a critical thinker and open-minded about a lot of things and um, my mind went to a place of going well you know there's a lot of journalism that is biased about lots of subjects and I want to know whether it is actually as bad and as destructive as these guys are saying or whether it is um, you know, actually all right. And it's just, they've annoyed a couple of journalists, right? And they've just saying, giving it bad press. So I actually just wanted to find out more, not because it piqued my interest on a spiritual journey point of view or anything, but just because, you know, it was a controversial thing and I wanted to, to know more about it. And so, yeah, I did a personality test and I went into the um, London org for like when they review the personality test um, and give you your, your graph that shows you the areas of your life you can improve. And um, normally when people join Scientology, the process is um, sort of trying to find someone's what they call a ruin, right? They find what it is that's ruining your life that, and then give Scientology as a solution. And I didn't really have one of those because I was a teenager. I was still growing up. I was still in school. I was kind of generally okay. I was quite a smart kid. I did loads of um, classes at school and you know did 17 GCSEs which is the UK kind of um, school uh, sort of program if you like mm. um, and so I didn't really have anything that was going wrong so there wasn't like Scientology gave me the solution but it was just more a nice place to be the people were really friendly um, and there's a saying in Scientology that it's not there to fix people it's to make the able more able and I feel like that's what sort of drew me in uh. was more you know, these are life improvement courses, practical tips, things you can apply in your life to just make you better at communicating or whatever it, it is that you're you're working on. So they never really found a ruin, but 
but I kind of got swept up in the culture of everyone having a united cause to save the planet and clear the world. And, you know, I think it was that aspect of the community driven thing that really sucked me in. Um, and so, yeah, I was still in school at the time. Okay. Did a couple of course, courses in the, the public course room and before long was, uh, yeah, ended up on on staff pretty, pretty quickly. <laughs> yeah, I understand that. Uh, it only took two years for me to get on staff. It was a lot shorter for you. Um, yeah. Let me ask you, let me backtrack for a second, because I'm, I'm genuinely curious. Um, what was your reaction to John Sweeney? He was BBC reporter at the time, and he, he's the one who did that expose on Panorama about Scientology. And he's famously known for blowing his stack, for completely losing it on Tommy Davis, the church spokesperson, who had been, we, we came to learn, had been needling John Sweeney with, with, the, with bigot. He was calling him bigot for days. Just, yeah. just, just, you know, uh, uh, trigger, 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 trying to provoke exactly the reaction he got on camera from John, where John just blew up at him and started yelling at him. And, and they, of course, used that as the highlight reel for why the Banorama is a, a, a scummy, horrible organization that shouldn't be listened to, because look at this reporter losing his mind. What were your thoughts watching that for the first time? I mean, it was a long time ago, but I yeah. think from memory, it was, I probably looked at it as a kind of, look, these two guys have had a disagreement. They're obviously at their, at each other's throats. And I don't think I put two and two together in my head that the reason Tommy Davis as the Scientology spokesperson is doing this is because he wants to create a reaction, etc. I thought of it more, you know, I, I didn't really realize or think that maybe that was actually what the church teaches and what they believe and, and how they operate. I think I looked at it as more that these two butted heads and they're both trying to do whatever they can to get each other to react on camera and make the other one look bad. Yeah. And that's part of the reason I thought, well, I want to go in and find out, you know, is it actually that is what they do or was it just, you know, a bad story that happened, you know, a bad disagreement that ended up happening to be captured on film um, and unfortunately looked bad for both of them. Um, so I think it was, yeah, just that general kind of genuine you know, inquisitiveness to, to try and find out more. And there's also the aspect of the US being a lot more extreme in terms of the stories you hear coming out of Scientology. There wasn't much focus on what happens in London. There was a little bit, but, you know, there's not too much. Out. And I was just kind of wondering, is it just that this church is a bit corrupt in the US and they do things differently and it's all a bit wrong there, but actually the principles work and in the UK, it's a bit more tame. And, you know, I went in with a really open mind, but aware that all these bad things have been said about this church. So I was kind of very wary from, from the get-go. Okay. Okay. Very interesting. I'm, I'm fascinated by it because it's it's good to get, you know, these, um, for me, it's really good to, to see the breadth of experience with this and how reasonable people can be or you know, the objective and sort of, well, I'm not going to judge just based on one story or one thing I see or one thing I hear. And all good points. You know, there's no fault finding with you here at all. I'm, I'm genuinely curious about what your, your viewpoint and attitude was going in. Um, you know, it's, it's not dissimilar to how people are looking at right now um, the Danny Masterson case. And they go, well, there's these women, but 
they could be lying and they're, you know, there's all these things that don't really make sense in their story. So, you know, no, the guy's probably innocent. How is he even being charged? And those of us who know how Scientology operates and know how Scientologists operate are looking at that case through a very different lens. And so it's, so it's quite interesting to have to remind myself constantly, knowing everything I know, that, you know, just because you see a couple bad things about something doesn't mean you immediately form the, the, the correct conclusion about it, you know, and it helps me to try to figure out ways to communicate about this more, um, I don't want to say even handedly, because I think I'm already doing that, but, but better so that it gets across to people that we are not talking about an organization in, in the Church of Scientology that is just like the Catholics or just like the Christian. It's just another belief system. That is not what this group is. And we'll go into all the details as to why in your story, but it's, it's so funny how they get so much benefit of the doubt from people, even after all this time and all this documentation of the abuses. I think also that part of what they teach you in Scientology is, you know, they have an answer for everything. You know, me having heard all they call it black PR, you know, all these bad stories about Scientology, I didn't go in and just not ask them these questions. You know, I didn't mm -hmm. go in and say, oh, you know, what's this Xenu story? Do you believe in aliens? And they go, no, we don't. And I kind of went, okay, great. And not ask, you know, I, I wanted to know, you know, and I was questioning everything. I went in with a real open and critical mind. Yep. And I think, you know, they do just have an answer for everything to get you to the point where you're satisfied that, you know, what they're saying, or it was a misinterpretation or it's misunderstood, or it's kind of like that, but not quite. And, you know, there's a bit of ambiguity in their answers, but it's kind of like a politician, you know, politicians never actually answer the question straight up. It's the same thing. They kind of they're really good with the way they communicate the message they want to, to make you feel satisfied that you don't need to ask any more questions. And that's where I got to. And, you know, the Xenu story is one really interesting one. Um, the person who I first, I'm going to try not to mention too many names because I sure. don't know who is still in and who isn't and what, I don't want to cause any repercussions for anyone who is still in, in Scientology. But the person who I first kind of, was speaking to that um, did after I did my um, personality test, gave me the results and routed me onto course and stuff. She's um, an older lady. She was probably in Scientology in the 80s and her children and grandchildren are in Scientology as well. So she's a, an old timer. She knows everything. She's OT8. Um, so I thought she was a really good person to be the first person to speak to in Scientology. And I, I outright asked her, I said, you know, what's this Xenu story? Like, do you guys believe in aliens? Because I'm not, I don't judge you. Like, if you do, actually, I think that's quite cool. You know, I was a teenager. I was like, do you believe in aliens? Because, you know, I don't know if I believe in aliens or not, but if you're saying you're a religion that does, that's, you know, that's kind of cool. Yeah, I can get on board with that. And she was like, no, obviously, you know, we don't believe in aliens. And the response that she gave, which is the same response I would give when I was working in Scientology was, Elrond Hubbard was a science fiction writer, and he um, did a lot of that writing to then fund his research into the mind, into the brain, spirituality. And uh, I've never heard anyone else say this before, so it's interesting that this is the London um, story, if you like. Um, but one of the things that is said is that 
um, people misunderstand that differentiation between his science fiction writing and his spiritual beliefs and mental, um, you know, mind work. And people think that we believe in his science fiction work, which obviously we don't. They're two separate things. So, no, we don't <laughs> believe in aliens. You know, he wrote science fiction to fund his research into the mind. How interesting. It's such a bald-faced lie that it just sits yeah. there on the table and you just go, oh, well, you're saying that with such certainty and aplomb. I mean, it must be true. Oh, these silly people are just confusing these two things. It's a great line to yeah. somebody who doesn't really know. Did just just because I'm just because that came up and I'm and it's the first time I'm kind of hearing it put so clearly mm -hmm. like that. Later on, as you read and learned and le and heard lectures from Hubbard about, did you ever were you ever exposed in your time in Scientology to the space opera histories that Hubbard would go into in his lectures? No, I didn't make it up to OT3. I didn't make it clear. I was kind of only very entry level. I didn't even make it onto my Purif because I was almost immediately rooted onto staff. And when you're on staff, you're, you know, doing the staff training and did staff status zero, one, and two. And, you know, there's a lot of objectives and auditing and stuff that I did that wasn't bridge auditing and bridge work. Um, but it's, yeah, so it's not something I ever had. Um, sort of exposure to but it's something that i would lie about as a scientologist you know i worked in div six which is the public facing division of scientology so um you know i'm kind of skipping a bit but i was the director of public book sales eventually so i was in charge of all the sales of books to public who don't know anything about scientology so i was face to face with people every day that aren't scientologists and get i would get these questions day in day out and one of the things when people brought up the Zeni story, one of the things I would say is, well, look, I work for the church. I've been in the church for, you know, a long time. If that was the case, I would know, you know, and I've not seen anything to say that we believe in aliens. And as someone that works for the church, wouldn't you think that I would know that if that was the case? And people would kind of go, oh, yeah, that does kind of make sense. I'm like, yeah, so no, we don't believe in the whole Zenu thing that's made up. I've got access to all of the books and everything because I work for the church. <laughs> I would know. <laughs> that is so But in the back funny. of my mind, I think there's probably some <laughs> doubt. Probably part of me was like, well, look, obviously I know I have access to all of the books and everything in the library and, you know, et cetera. But part of me was kind of thinking probably, look, if that is the story, Xenu and all of that, well, you know, it probably sounds a bit nuts, but... Maybe there's something I don't understand and I'll find out that then that will make sense. And, you know, I just didn't question it or think about it too much and yeah. didn't judge it. Because, no, it's you know, interesting. It's, it's yeah. interesting. It's interesting also because what I'm thinking about right now as we're talking about this is how, how Scientology over the decades morphs its public image to match with cultural values and norms, right? Where right now, for example, they heavily downplay their anti-LGBT rhetoric. They downplay the space opera. That Oh, no, 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 that's not a thing here. In fact, they downplay it so much that they're blatantly lying about it, where it's like, oh, no, no, that's not even part of our dogma, when in fact it's a tremendous part of the dogma. But what I find interesting there is how that's another morphine of their public image and public-facing statements um, to match the culture. Because in the 60s, spirituality and alien stuff was all over their frontline 
discussions, mm. right? Oh yeah, come in here. We're going to teach you all about the UFOs and the aliens and the and the and the spirits. And people were like, "What?" You know, and 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 coming in on that. So I just find it uh, something worth commenting on. You know, the the changing um, PR statements mm. that Scientology uses to bring people in and and really play on that reasonability, that 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 uh, automatic. Uh, thinking on the part of, say, you as a new staff member, new Scientologist, you'd only really been around for, what, a year at most, and you're saying with certainty, oh, no, 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 this stuff isn't here, and yet you haven't read even a hundredth of the material yet (laughs) to be able to say that, but you're taking people at their word, and here's this high-level Scientologist saying, oh, no, 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 we don't have that, and you go, oh, well, I haven't seen it, so it must not be here, and it's all over the place in that literature so it's it's kind of funny you know but i think there's also a little bit of sweet ignorance in there in that part of me was thinking well i've not seen it and i wouldn't have seen it if it was there because i didn't reach that level but part of me was thinking well look if it is there and that is what the teachings are well so what like people can believe in what they have whatever they want to believe in and you know i haven't seen those documents and yes i'm a part of the church and if they one day show them to me and tell me this is it well then i'll make my decision as to whether or not i believe in that or not but you know i just kind of had an open mind and thought well even if they do believe in aliens and you know galactic warlords and dropping h-bombs in volcanoes you know sounds whack i don't believe that i've but if they do oh well i think the thing that was important to me at the time was this group of people in this church were genuinely i think this is one thing that's not stated enough about scientology particularly in the uk the vast majority of scientologists are genuinely good people right i think the majority of people especially in london org want to help people right The thing is, they think the best way of helping people is through Scientology, because however you want to interpret it, with brainwashing or whatever, the indoctrination, for whatever reason, they believe Scientology is the best way to help humankind and help people live better lives. And that's all they want to do. And I think that was what got it for me. I was thinking, well, look, if they do believe in crazy stuff and there's all this stuff going on and rumors flying around, what's important is actually these people that I spend all day every day with working we're just here trying to make the world a better place so what if some of them believe in weird alien stories you know the important thing is that we're clearing the planet you know yeah exactly (laughs) and they're not even doing that well (laughs) let's uh let's carry on with your narrative then so so basically we left off you went in there did personality test got signed up thought this was interesting stuff um how old are you at this point back then so i was probably about 16 i would say because i'd finished school because i remember we you finished school here in sort of like you know may or june or something and then you in the uk it's a bit different to the us so in the uk you finish school at 16 um and then you have the option to do another two years in college or sixth form which is your a levels which is an optional thing and then after that when you turn 18 you go to university which is slightly different to what you guys call college. So, right. um, you know, I finished school at 16 um, at, in May or June or whatever. And then as soon as I finished school, they were like, great, well, look, you've got all this time on your hands now. Come and join staff. Great. Okay. So I joined staff and worked in the church over the summer. Now I was meant to go um, back to school to do my sixth form college two years um, in the September. And when I signed up, 
with staff, like to staff, I said to them, look, my plan is to go to university and get a degree and then figure out what I want to do. You know, if I end up, you know, joining staff afterwards, fine. I'm happy to join staff now, but I'm joining it with you guys knowing I will have to leave in September unless somehow we make it work that I don't need to go to university or whatever, but I'd like to do that. Um, and they were like, okay, yeah, that's fine, no problem. So joined staff and worked full-time over the summer at the age of 16. Um, I was um, really interested in law at the time. I initially wanted to do history and law at university. So I wanted to join OSA, which is the Office of Special Affairs, which is the dirty tricks part of the, the church that we see so much or hit and hear so much about. But part of their... Um, of their division is the legal section and I went in there going look I'm interested in law I'd love to be involved in some of the legal cases and you know learning from that and that's kind of what I wanted to do um but ended up once they do your kind of assessments to figure out where your best place in the church they were like no we think you're going to be good in div six public facing um so I wasn't director of public book sales straight away I was underneath someone else who was um in that post and did that for for several months um and then it came to the end of the few months and my mom and dad and family are not scientologists and obviously the expectation is that you finish your schooling before you go and do any sort of work or <laughs> anything like that and um there was this whole thing about handling my parents on scientology they weren't anti-scientology um but you know they weren't too happy at the idea of their son leaving school early and joining this thing has a bad reputation. So there was this whole story of how do we get, particularly my mum, to a place where she doesn't have to be a Scientologist, but she has to be accepting of this being something that I want to do um, and that I've decided I don't want to go to uni anymore and I want to continue on staff. Um, and that was a lot harder than, you know, they, I reckon, thought it would be. Mm. Um and long story short, the um, big event happens in October every year called the IAS event, the International Association of Scientologists. It's a big um, yearly celebration of everything Scientology do. Um, and the idea was that we would bring my mum along to that event to show her more about Scientology, to show her all the good work that we're doing. And, you know, that would be a good way of introducing her and making her feel OK with me doing this. And was this going um, to be the live event at St. Hill that you all were going to, or was this going to yeah. be the the televised one at, at, in London? No, the live event. Live so one, because okay. St. Hill is only an hour or two south of London, um, pretty much everyone that works at London Org lives in East Grinstead. Um, wow. Because, yeah, because it's only an hour or so on the train, and you can get the train straight from um, East, Grinstead through, East Grinstead through to Blackfriars, which is the nearest station to London Org. Um, so most people travel up from EG through uh, right up to London and do their work and then go back at the end of the day and then study at St. Hill in the evening um, and then go home. Um, oh, I was so, not aware. That's interesting. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, because it's only an hour or so away. Um, yeah, most people live and study at St. Hill, do all their training and processing there, just come to London all to work. And I was the exception because I lived in London. So with the IES event, everyone goes to it in person because it's, you know, only down the road. And then a day or two later, we would then hold an event in the org to show the public the video of it. Um, wow. So the idea was to bring my mum to the actual event. Now, my mum also, oh, like me, me... I'm sorry, let yeah. me interrupt you real fast. I don't think we've defined this. So let me let me let everybody know. 
This is a big deal, this gathering, this event that we're talking about here. It's the IAS is the International Association of Scientologists. It's the membership collective of Scientology. And there are levels of membership based on how much money you're giving them. I think minimum is like 5,000 or something. But there's, there's different levels of this. And this yearly celebration is where Miscavige will come out on stage and brief <laughs> on all the things that have been happening during the year and how the IAS is leading the charge to clear the planet, to make a Scientology world. And there, it's a no-holds-barred kind of pull-no-punches sort of event in terms of straight Scientology being delivered directly to you. They're not, this isn't the sort of thing that they would want televised. And in fact, that famous, infamous Tom Cruise turtleneck video where he's wearing a turtleneck sweater and going on at a mad rate, sounding like a complete lunatic, that's a clip from a video shown at an IES event back in 2004. So, it's these are big deal events, and it's a it's a. I was when you first told me this uh, before the show here, um, I was like, "Wow, your mom was going to this? That's okay. Let's see what happens." You know, so it was kind of. It's yeah, not it's generally a, it's a, a raw big, it, it, public intensive event. event. Yeah, it's yeah. a big intense event of like lots of lights and videos, and look how great we are, and look yeah. we've opened a new ideologue in this city, and this city we've got this letter from the mayor telling them how good we are, and look at how many people we've helped with or getting off drugs, and you know it's really kind of like high intensity happiness like look at how great we are event yeah. um they actually hire they do it because saint hill isn't big enough to hold the event they hire a massive tent that they put in the garden um i believe at the time it was the largest tent in europe i remember that being a thing that they kept um oh they kept sort of telling me about an interesting thing about how great we are and how good scientology is that we hold this event where the only thing big enough to hold all the scientologists we have to rent the largest <laughs> stretch tent in europe um, <laughs> which which i've actually since been in going to festivals like music festivals because it's a tent they hire from a company and they use it as like a stage at festivals so it's quite funny often being at music festivals standing in this tent going if only people knew six months ago <laughs> 5,000 or 10,000 Scientologists are standing under this, like with lights and yeah. yeah. But no, yeah, you're, you're right. It's, it's a really intense event that's really theta, you know, very happy. Um, and I think for someone like my mum, who wasn't a Scientologist, it probably would have, probably wouldn't have been the best first introduction to Scientology because it would have been quite overwhelming and intense. So it's probably a good thing that we ended up not going mm. um, in the end. But um, but yeah, that was the handling of, of like and, how to get mom. Uh, yeah, you just said you. So you guys didn't go. So what what happened? If this was the big handling to handle your mom, what what mm. what fell through? So just like any parent, my mom was you know hearing about her son getting involved in this controversial religion and church. So she was doing her own research, and I'll have to ask her. I don't actually know the story because it was a while ago. But um, from what I remember. She was just asking, you know, friends and family, what what do you think about Scientology? And I think it was something like a friend of a friend, you know, has a colleague who was disconnected or something, right? So a very distant thing. And basically it was like, you know, do you want me to set you up with a, a meeting so you can talk to them and find out their story? And I think my mom was like, yeah, that would be interesting. That's the extent of it. Never actually, as far as I know, met with this person. Um, and doesn't know anything about this. I don't know the story. I don't think she did. I think it was just more of a asking around to find out more information 
And this person came up and said, oh, I think I know someone that was involved. Um, but that was enough in Scientology's mind um, to bar myself and my mum from Scientology events saying, you are connected to an anti-Scientologist and we can't risk it and we don't want you coming to the event um, because you might cause trouble or whatever. You know, you're potentially connected to a suppressive person, an enemy of the church. It's all very dramatic and it was all done the night before. My mum had booked the day off work. I'd booked the day off school because I was back at school at that point um, to go and, and do this thing. And the night before I got a call from... Um, the director of OSA, Mark Pinchin, who won't mind me dropping his name because he's publicly out there as a Scientologist. He, um, yeah, he called me up and said, look, sorry, you can't come because you've told us that your mum has spoken to someone who's spoken to someone who knows someone who five years ago had an issue or whatever it was. Um, and because of that, you can't come. And so I was then kicked off lines. I was told you can't come to the IS event. You can't come into the church. You can't do any courses because I'd left staff at that point to go back to school because we hadn't got to that point of handling my mum to be okay with me not going to school. Um, so I was back at school, but still doing courses and, you know, still as a public in the in the org. Um, and they basically said, because this connection, that's it. You can't can't do it anymore. See you later. Bye. And was effectively cut off from everything and said, see you later. Bye. And so I just focused on my school and didn't do any Scientology for a, a year or so. Um, huh. How, yeah. what was your, so you had been there by this point, because what is the IS event is in October, I think. Hmm. So I would have been on staff for like six months or something. And how were you getting along with everybody there? How did they like you? How did you like them? Was this a shock to you that suddenly, Oh, because uh, you're you're five degrees of separation from some rando SP who has something bad to say about Scientology. Now we can't have you even on location here. Like, what what were your thoughts about that? I think if there's one thing I miss about Scientology, it's the people. You know, it's the friends and the friendships and getting on with everyone and having this united cause to do something together to help save the planet or or whatever. And that's the thing that hit me hardest at that time was I had all these friends, you know, the director of public book sales who was above me at the time and all of the div sixes, we would go out every week and, um, you know, go book selling and we would be in the church. We would spend lots of time together and we would get on really well and hang out and, and all this. And so I think the thing that upset me the most at this point was okay, cool, well, there's whatever policy thing going on, I don't understand it, but they would stop replying to my texts and had no communication with me whatsoever. And that really cut me up for a while of kind of, you know, I was beaten up about, hold on, not only are you saying that I can't come into the church and do services, but now you're not my friend anymore. And it made me question like how genuine those friendships really are. Um, in the first place, if you can just drop them like that, you know, so I went through a process over a year of kind of getting a bit not anti-Scientology, but a bit, you know, pissed off and like, well, I don't need you anyway. If, you know, it wasn't really a true friendship, if you're just going to drop me like that, oh, well, I'm better off without you. And then coming to terms with it in my mind and um, for whatever reason, no idea, but timing was perfect. Um, I was kind of in the state of mind of thinking, 
maybe enough time has passed that, you know, wounds are healed. Maybe I should get back in touch and see if there's a way I can get back on on church lines and doing services again. Um, because I did enjoy being around those people and, you know, learning stuff. And it was fun. And it was about the time I was having those thoughts that FLAG, which is the um, Florida-based headquarters of Scientology in Clearwater, um, happened to get in touch with me over the phone, I think it was. Um, it was literally just a book read. So someone who is in the Sea Org that is trying to sell books to people and get people, you know, to buy their basics. So in, sorry, I'm saying lots of little terms here. In Scientology, Elrond Hubbard wrote lots of books um, and we call it the basics books package and books and lectures. So you can spend a couple of thousand pounds on getting every book and every lecture that he ever gave it as a package of, you know, documents that you can then study through. Mm-hmm. Um, and now, so, let me yeah. correct, let me correct one thing you said there real fast. It's just, these are minutia points, tiny little thing really, but the, the basics books and lectures and all the material that's available right now is actually only a fraction of the total work that L. Ron Hubbard did. They haven't yeah. released all the lectures uh, that he gave, but there, there is a tremendous amount of stuff there. And they have, um, and as you mentioned, they, this was a whole repackaging that was done back in 2004. Yeah, it's kind of like, this is what Scientology is. You buy the basics, books and lectures, read them, listen to them all, and you'll understand it. Yep. That's not the materials that make you go clear. And, you know, it's not the technical bulletins and all that sort of stuff. It is just like the books that you can buy and read and the lectures you can listen to that takes you on the journey of, Lelron Hubbard and Scientology and his research and all, research and all of that. Um, so anyway, yeah, got picked up on a phone call from someone at Flag who was basically trying to sell me these books. Um, and I kind of mentioned, actually, I'm not, I'm not going to spend all this money with you. I'm a teenager. I don't have that money. And also, I'm pissed off at you guys because of what happened a year ago or whatever it was. Um, and this girl who was at Flag, who I'd never met, who's in the Sea Org, she just wanted to sell me books. But she ended up being really heavily involved in getting me back in to the church because she, I told her the story and she was like, that doesn't sound right. Like that doesn't sound like how Scientology is meant to be, um, you know, done. It doesn't sound like ethics and policies have been followed here. And essentially got me to the place where I got back in touch with the org and there was an investigation, um, which is called a board of review where I wrote a report and said, this is what happened, and I'm really pissed off. Um, and yeah, some people in London all got together and reviewed the situation and um, yeah, wrote a review that said, yeah, we were wrong. You know, we shouldn't have done this. It was right for Alex to not have come to the IS event, because at the time we thought there was a connection and for the protection of the group, we don't want someone to come to the event that's a potential enemy. Um, however, it wasn't right that he should be barred from doing services and coming into the org and all of this stuff. Um, so I think that's the first time I've ever actually heard of someone saying about Scientology admitting a mistake of kicking someone out when they shouldn't have been. Have you heard of anything oh, like I've, that? Oh, yeah. I used to do that all the time. Really? What, yeah, because what you're describing is what's called a recovery cycle. Right. And um, it's a, you know, it's a, it's a um, thing that is done in Scientology to bring, you know, lapsed parishioners, if you will, uh, you know, former members back into the fold. 
And uh, this is a frequent activity of Scientology. They are constantly working their lists of people who have come in and, and done services in the past, even have money still on account in the church's bank accounts. You know, the church has long since spent that money, but it's credited on their account in the church. And people leave and leave that money there. They don't, they don't get a refund because the church doesn't easily give them. And they just kind of write it off as a bad investment or bad, you know, uh, thing or whatever. And then I would come knocking, you know, hi, uh, you were in Scientology a year ago or two years ago or 10 years ago. And I have, I have stood on the doorstep of, of many former Scientologists and done my level best to explain to them, you know, get from them why they got involved, what was the hope and dream they had, and then trained, I was trained to, you know, resuscitate that purpose, that, that goal that they had. And if I could do that successfully and convince them that Scientology could still produce that for them, I could get them down to the church. And often part of that was a recognition that they'd been screwed over somehow. That's why they left in the first place for the most part. Somebody screwed them over. You know, they got charged too much. They even had, you know, their credit card charged when it shouldn't have been, or they couldn't come back because of some arbitrary rule, like is what happened with you. No, just get out of here. We just don't want you here. You know, kind of this kind of nonsense. And so my job as an individual was to acknowledge that wrongness, but I could never put it on the church as a whole. It wasn't, oh, Scientology was wrong for doing this our policies were wrong that was that could never be said what was said and and similar to what was told to you is oh well somebody must have screwed this up some individual made a bad choice or did something wrong that was an error that's not what our policies actually say let's get you back in here and get this corrected and that was that's generally how you would how I would uh, get people back in. And it sounds like that's how they got you back. Yeah. And that's how you separate the upset. You, you know, it's yes. not the Scientology is bad. It's not the Scientology kicked you out and told everyone to stop speaking to you or whatever. It's that someone didn't do it right. Scientology right. Is, is fine and good. And, you know, this recovery cycle thing works. You know, this lady I was speaking to on the phone every week who is, you know, trying to get me back on lines in London, but she was based in Flag and never met her. You know, we she was just trying to sell me books. But this long process ended up getting me to the place where I was when I was on staff in that I was fully indoctrinated and believing that Scientology is the way to clear the planet and to help save humanity. And, you know, I signed my Sea Org contract, right? Before I'd even gone back into London Org after being kicked out, I was still in that recovery process of like trying to be got back into the church. And yeah, I signed my Sea Org contract, which is for those who don't know, a 1 billion year contract that you sign where you're basically um, signing your life up to dedicate it to Scientology, kind of like a, a monk or a nun, you know, in that they give their whole life to Scientology, to the, the church. It'd be the same with Scientology. Um, and so I signed that and I was like fully ready and gung-ho about it. And let's do this. Let's change the planet. And yeah, there's been a bit of an upset with London Org, but that's because someone there's not doing it right. I still believe in Scientology and I was doing extension courses. So I was studying my books and my basics and everything with flag online from home. Um and yeah, like it just kind of all makes sense, made sense and 
fell into place, I suppose. So I was like, you know, raring to go. How interesting. Let me ask you that at this point, you know, with you signing a Sea Org contract, which is an incredible commitment, especially for a relatively new Scientologist, generally speaking, we would go after and try to recruit people who were already pretty involved Scientologists. Rare, it happened, you know, uh, often enough, but it rare to go after a fresh new person and very rare to try to recruit somebody into the Sea Org who's made a recovery. That's, that's incredible to me. I, I can think of only a handful of times I've ever heard or seen of anything like that. What was it about Scientology itself and what you had, had been exposed to at this point or by this time beyond the, the, the community? Because the community kicked you out. I mean, you weren't part of London Org in that community anymore. So what, what was still hooking you? What was, what was it that you were still like, no, this is, this is it? All I can say is that whoever that lady was I was speaking to on the phone, if she's still in, if she's, if she's left the Sea Org, she better be in a sales job. And I bet she's doing a really good job in it. If she does ever leave, you know who you are if you're watching this. Um, if you do leave, go and get a sales job because you'll be a multimillionaire within years because you managed to do the impossible. Um, no, I think, yeah, I, it's hard to answer that question because, like I said, I didn't really have a ruin. It wasn't like I had some problem talking to people or communicating or whatever and I went and did a course and it changed my life like for me it was just more the yeah the idea of the world being a messed up place and this is a way to solve that and to help you know people live a better life and I think it was just that mission of I think what got me was definitely the ego thing because mm. in when you're in the seal you or on staff as well um you're kind of under the impression that Scientology is the way to clear the planet and to save humanity so you're therefore more important and you're you have this special technology that you can use to save the world and that makes you feel special it makes you feel you know important and I think that's what kind of was the driver for me was like well i'm involved in something here that's going to make a difference and going to make an impact and i'm going to help people um by doing this and i think that's what really got me going mm. and you know the whole idea of you know living multiple lives and millions of years reincarnation or this sort of thing you know the few years you have on planet earth here as a human being so what if you spend that you know, working for a church and not working in a company or something because, you know, you're actually helping save the planet. And I was like, yeah, let's do it. You know, even though I was kind of fresh and didn't have too much Scientology knowledge, I'd probably read half of the basics. So I had a good understanding, but not, you know, not much of bridge work at that time. Sure. I think it was, yeah, just the idea of there's something to this and I've seen it help other people. I've seen people in the org going in, doing services, coming out and being helped by it. Um, so, yeah, I think that's what it was. Interesting. Well, fair enough. I mean, it, it makes sense. The, you know, there was a point of something you said there that I wanted to um, to highlight for a second, and that is that there's a term called love bombing. Uh, this is a common recruitment tactic or recovery tactic for destructive cults or for sales. I mean, really, it's it, it works outside of cults. It's 
it's ego boosting. It's it's a matter of telling people things or insinuating or or inserting things into the conversation that are designed to make the person you're talking to feel significantly better about themselves and their situation and being part of this activity, whether it's buying this product or joining this group or or both or whatever it is they're trying to get you to do. And and love bombing sounds like and often is a very gratuitous activity. It can be, you know, 20 people come into the room and are just like, oh, you're so awesome for doing this. Yes, this is the thing to do. And they really get you all riled up. Now, that's, that's a pretty extreme way of going about it. A much more subtle way of doing it, which it sounds like she was doing with you, is just throwing these comments in and this sort of, of course, this is the most important group in the world. And of course, you recognize that because you're such a special person or special being, you know, you're you're one of the few upper upper percentage of the upper percentage who can actually see the truth of the world and how screwed up it is. Most people just wander around in life like zombies and they don't see anything. They don't hear anything. They just go about their stupid little lives and go watch the telly and go home and eat their little food and and hope that their life isn't too miserable before they kick off. But you, you see something different. You see something special and you are therefore somebody special. And that's why you're here in Scientology. This kind of talk is maybe not word for word what they did with you, but I certainly did this and I certainly experienced it. And, you know, and this is, this is also love bombing. And she would, she would read out and send me bits of policies that yeah. as a previous staff member and as a public um, Scientologist, I didn't have privy to, I didn't know anything about these, there it is. but she yeah. would give me little snippets of quotes from policies and bulletins that LRH, Ellen Hubbard had written that are only available to to Sea Org members, mm-hmm. those who have dedicated their lives to Scientology. And I think a lot of them come from the the EPF, right? Which is the what you do when you first become a Sea Org member and it's the training indoctrination part of that process, right? Correct. I think it comes from a lot of the training there because there's a lot of kind of I remember her telling me and reading me quotes about how you know, the Sea Org, like you say, the upper percentile of the upper percentile. And, you know, we're here to do very important work and Sea Org members should be treated like royalty because they're on a mission. They're doing something really important. And if a Sea Org member goes into a, an org and says something, it needs to be done. Like we're focused, we're doing important things. And yeah, she would give me these little snippets of, of like, see, look, this is what life is like in the Sea Org. And this is why it's important and i think this is what made you want to join staff is because you see there's something here to this you know technology and joining the sea org is the best way of getting it to as many people as possible and you know i i initially said that i wanted to get into like film and golden era productions i remember seeing all the tv ads and stuff that they did at super bowl and just really wowed by the production of them you know and thinking that's really cool i'd love to get involved in that and you know how do i how do i join gold how do i be a creative person making movies and films and music and doing creative stuff day in day out and at the same time helping the planet well you could join a sea org we can move you to gold and then you'll be doing creative stuff every day and every bit of creative work you're doing is helping save clear the planet like for me as a teenager i'm like 
great, let's do it. I don't need to earn money. If you're going to pay for my housing and pay for my food and everything I need, and I'm going to live in America, which I'd never been to at that point, and I liked the idea of going to America, you know, they sold you this dream. And I was like, cool, let's do it. Like, game on. Sounds great. Sign me up. (laughs) So I did. Exactly. (laughs) That's well, you know, an awful lot of what you just said was what enticed me into the Sea Org at 25 years old mm-hmm. after doing staff for eight years and feeling like my head was, you know, caving in from banging it against the wall all the time because we weren't getting anywhere. Uh, you know, in Santa Barbara, it was the same, you know, tiny little place struggling year after year after year, despite all the work I was doing and and, and every and the other, you know, uh, small number of staff who were there were doing so. I I totally get it. Totally get it. And uh, and it's really empowering, isn't it? When you feel like you're doing something so special and incredible that no one else is really doing. I think also as a teenager, you know, mm-hmm. I, I was always quite a mature person as a kid growing up anyway. I was always like more mature than, you know, other kids and, you know, would have adult conversations younger than most other people. And because of that, I kind of had an air of like, I want people to take me seriously as an adult and not treat me like a kid. And here I am being offered this chance to do a really important job. You know, it's stroking the ego and it's making you yes. feel important. And when I eventually, so just in terms of timeline here, I signed my seal contract and then there was this board of review thing go on that we mentioned earlier. Yeah. And then I joined staff again at London Org as a kind of stepping stone to then get me into the Sea Org full time. Um, Cause I'd finished school at this point. Um, and I remember going into this, you know, going into the org again as a staff member, a couple of years later, having read loads more Scientology and Dianetics and knowing a lot more about it now, reading policies and all of this and having been through this process, I remember going in and being like, right, I'm here. I'm going to make a difference. Like, let's do this. And one of the first things I did was send a TEDx to David Miscavige, chairman of the board, right? Which I know you'd laugh about this. (laughs) I think this is actually hilarious. uh, Because it just shows how, like, how gung ho I was, right? I was a teenager, right? And it just shows how much I thought I was doing the best thing ever. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It's like you writing know. the CEO. It's like writing the top of the top and going, I'm so happy to be here. This is awesome. It's gonna be incredible. And they didn't really share your joy in that communication, did they? <laughs> <laughs> Essentially, I was new. So this is when the second time I joined staff, I was then put into the position of director of public book sales because the person doing it before had actually joined the SEAL, so she wasn't in that post anymore. Mm. Um down at St. Hill, she was now. So yeah, I was doing public book sales and I was doing my staff statuses, this training, and part of it is the non-existence formula, right? Which is, you know, how you know part of it is making people aware that you're now doing this job, right? You're now the, and taking ownership of your job in the church. Yeah. And me being young and enthusiastic, I was like, well, great, I've signed my seal contract. I'm in this post, right? I'm going to send a message to David Miscavige, like you say, like the CEO or the, you know, the top, top, top level person in this multinational company and say, I think it was just a very short message that essentially just said, 
you know, hi, I'm the new director of public sales at London. I've signed my seal contract. I'm ready to go. I wanted you to know that I'm here doing it and whatever you need, let me know. I'm here to make the world a better place and I'm going to put London on the map, right? It was something along those lines, yep. um, which they didn't like. <laughs> exactly. Now, what... What were you told? What happened there? Because this was because there's it's a completely innocuous, sincere message from a you know new eager beaver staff member. What the hell could be wrong with that? Imagine like you are a CEO of your own company and you know you get this new intern start and they send you an email saying, Hi, I'm the new intern, I want to help. <laughs> Most people would be like, Oh, that's great, yep. cool, yeah, yep. amazing here's how you can help or good to meet you or whatever i didn't get a response didn't get anything i heard nothing back from it whatsoever until several months later when i was kicked out of the church um for the second time which is when it was then thrown in as part of the ammunition um and they were basically saying oh yeah there were reports written about the fact that you tell cob which is not something that you should do um it didn't get to him but it got to his pa or something mm. um and apparently it was yeah we we got in trouble because of it right but i right. didn't know that at the time i didn't know until oh, until much, much later. later yeah interesting very very interesting and, it, and it's interesting also because you alluded there to a very important word in scientology which is the word reports Mm -hmm. reports were received reports were written people got in trouble this is a this is a a, a briefest of glimpse in, into the scientology ethics and justice apparatus and the reporting system in scientology is extensive um you learn about it when you're doing your staff status uh you know initial training uh, as a staff member that there's something on the order of 20 different kinds of reports that you can write uh, from a damage report to what's called a knowledge report, which is the most common one, to a you know technical alter is report where somebody has screwed up some technical procedure, and you know, and they have to have a specific report for that kind of behavior. So it's it's an extensive system of reporting in Scientology. Um, only because I'm curious, and we're kind of bouncing on the narrative and then off the narrative since we're talking about this. As a new green, you know, coming into the system, kind of getting into this, did you ever have any any thoughts or ideas about that system? I loved a report, me. I wrote so many reports. I think this is the thing that it's taken me a long time. We'll talk about this a bit more later, but yeah. it's taken me a long time to kind of come to terms with my time in Scientology and the impact it had on me mentally and so on. And this is just a, a real example of writing reports on people and things that haven't been done right you know the, the concept kind of makes sense right if you're doing something at work and you see someone not doing it right you know say to them hey you know do you notice if you try it this way it might be better great that concept makes sense however when it's a report in the way that it is in Scientology, it's you're writing reports on every little thing that you see that's wrong or out ethics, or you know, you see someone having a risky conversation with someone or whatever, you're basically telling on people, right? You're snitching on everyone about everything, which is a really horrible thing to do. And at the time, 
you don't realize that at the time I was like, oh yeah, report, let's do it. I would, I would write reports about everything because for me, I'm like, well, look, Owen Hubbard says it's meant to be this way. So I love my favorite was the things that shouldn't be report, which basically says, this is how LRH says it's meant to be in the policy. And I saw it not being done by the policy. So there we go. I would do that all the time because I was learning all of these policies as I was doing my studies and I would see things that weren't being done right. And having had the kind of trauma of being kicked out previously and them admitting it's because someone didn't apply tech correctly, then I was kind of almost had a like an eye out for it. I was looking for things that weren't being done properly because it really upset me and I wanted to make sure it didn't upset anyone else. I didn't want anyone else to go through what I went through, having been kicked out, losing all of my friends, losing my purpose of like wanting to help people and all of that because I was so invested. You know, I was really beaten up about it. I didn't want anyone to go through that. So I was really focused on writing as many reports as I could on things that I saw that weren't right so that they could be fixed. Right, right. And if that's as far as the system went is so they could be fixed, maybe we'd have something useful, you know, but of course it's much darker than that as as they brought mm. this stuff up later. Um, and you never saw any of those reports until months later when policy says you're actually supposed to see reports that are written on you. You're supposed to get a copy of them. There were one or two reports that came through like KRs, like knowledge reports and things that were written on me while I was working in the church. And I did see them, you know, coming through the system, like one or two. But when I left, that's when they basically opened my ethics file and said, say, see, look, you've been doing this wrong. You've done this. You've done this. This person said you've done this. This person saw you doing this. Here's all the ammunition. And that was like a bigger blow because I didn't have any defense to it because I didn't even know what the report said. They were just telling me what they've read. Right. They didn't even show it to you. Yeah, I got that sort of uh, treatment lots of times, you know. Well, we've received reports, and you're like, can I see them? No. Well, then how am I supposed to respond? Well, that's why I'm talking to you right now. And then <laughs> and then I would write a things that shouldn't be report, because in policy it says if there's a report written about you, you should get a copy of it. Right. So they would say, we've got a report about you, and I'd say, can I see it? You'd say no. So then I would write a report that saying you wouldn't show me the report. <laughs> I know, it's just it becomes a bit of a circle jerk at the same time. It's All crazy. right. Well, fair enough. So let's go back to the narrative now. So, um, so fine. So the Sea Org yeah. thing, but you don't actually arrive in the Sea Org because you go back to London and they welcome you with open arms. Yeah. So we we kind of did this border review thing, and I was you know put on staff, and I said I was going around. I'm like, look, I'm happy to be on staff. I'm glad I'm back, but I'm pissed off, right? Because mm -hmm. you've kicked me out. And so the solution was this border review, which they did, and I've got the. The letter still that says you know we fucked up sorry um and after that i was kind of you know i was still upset by it i said great you've written here that you messed up and you know that's that but that doesn't make me feel any better about it i'm still annoyed because i was at this point as a teenager of kind of moving from a school to a new school to starting on a staff and trying to find my way in life and came across this group of people that had this purpose of things that they were trying to do, clear the planet and 
you know, I gave my life to it the whole summer. I was working there day in, day out. So, you know, it was everything to me. And then suddenly I was thrown out. So that that really hurts, right? And so, yes, by saying you messed up and you shouldn't have kicked me out of the way you have, I, I'm still upset by it because it was a big part of my life and, and my identity and what I thought was my purpose of like, you know, what am I doing with my life? Am I going to go to be a lawyer or study art or whatever? My purpose was to do Scientology. And so to not be able to do that anymore, it, you know, it's, it's upsetting. So anyway, told them that and basically it was like, well, great, we need to fix this. And so they, you know, came up with some sort of program and I did lots of um, sort of not bridge work, but auditing on the meter. Um, I don't know what type or anything I could probably find out somehow, but basically went into session um, for several hours a day for several days over the course of a week or two. Obviously, I was on staff, so I didn't have to pay for any of this mm. because it's all free when you're on staff. Um, but we just had a load of auditors come over from um, from FLAG, having done training for um, GAT2, Golden Age of Tech 2, um, which we can talk about later for those who don't know. But basically, it's really highly trained auditors that mm -hmm. came back to London Org. So I was having the best of the best auditing. And auditing is this cancelling session where you use the e-meter and the idea is it helps locate sources of, of tension and trouble in your life. And so I went into session and I was like, look, I'm pissed off because you guys have hurt me. You know, there was this thing called ARC break, you know, in Scientology, they believe in affinity, reality, communication. And so the more you talk to someone, the more you find things to agree with them about the reality and the more affection you have for them, the affinity. And it all kind of works in tandem. And so they were basically saying, I'm ARC broken, right? I've had a an upset with the church because I was ceased communicating. My reality, my agreement and belief in the system was broken because it was not applied correctly. And yeah, so I had to do some, some sessions to kind of help that. And at the same time, I was um, reading Self-Analysis, I think it was, which is one of Owen Hubbard's books. And I think it was in there that it says something like, when you go into a session, um, the idea is the session makes you feel better. You're not allowed to leave an auditing session until you've increased on the tone level, on your tone, tone scale. Right? Yeah. Um, and I came out of a session upset. I was crying. <laughs> um, and I was like, I went in to see the examiner afterwards, who is the one who sort of checks off how well the session went and all of that. And they were like, how do you feel? I said, I feel worse. I felt pissed off and annoyed at the church. Now I've gone into this auditing session and I I feel even more upset. I feel, you know, worse than I did before and wrote a report about it. You're meant to go into a session that's make, meant to make you feel better. And something's not right here. It's happening again, right, where things weren't being applied how they were meant to be applied. That's how I got kicked out the first time. So I kicked up a fuss of like, I can see things not being done correctly here again and i don't want and i got really kind of focused on it because you know i did i wanted lrh tech to be applied correctly because if you apply it correctly that's how you clear the planet and save everyone and that's the answer right but that's how much it's in your head right in that i'm upset with the church but actually what i'm upset with is the fact that they're not doing l ron hubbard policies correctly 
because I genuinely thought that that is the answer. That's what will make me feel better. And that's what will solve the problem is by applying tech. Right. And that's the trap. That's the trap that everybody falls in with Scientology. And it is a carefully laid trap, by the way. It sounds perfectly reasonable. I'm telling you, this is really interesting because I, I, I want to I wanna point something out here about Scientology. And this is one of the things where Scientology truly is different from these other groups that we mentioned at the beginning of the show or any other group, really. I mean, other than other destructive cults. And, and, the, and the point here is you have a system in place that appears to work. It appears to make sense. Oh, we write these reports, we have this org board, we have these statistics, we have all this stuff people do, and it's all very interesting, and it's all this integrated whole, and it looks like it's going to work beautifully. And if you just do it, and if everybody does it right, you can't help but expand. It's, it's inevitable. If, you, if, you, if everybody's on the same page and doing all of this properly, expansion is assured. In fact, the only reason, and the logic used is, the only reason we're not expanding, the only reason that there's ever any trouble... It's because people aren't doing this properly. So if if that's not happening, somebody's screwing up or some series of people are screwing up and we need to fix that. And what that actually does is puts you in a witch hunt mentality all the time because you're constantly looking for the people who are screwing up because the system doesn't produce the expansion it promises. It's mm-hmm. constantly over-promising and never delivering. And because it doesn't deliver, because the system itself doesn't work, even though it, it appears like it should, there are so many carefully laid landmines in the system that are integral to its operation that you can't get past or around or avoid, like the ethics section, like the fair gaming, like some of these other things that happen, the week-to-week madness of of statistics being driven on a weekly basis. This is part of the system. You can't get away from it. And these are the things that make the system not work, make it completely unworkable. But this part of the system is, if it's not working, it's on you, not the system. So you end up in a headspace. This is called a double bind. This is one of these crazy things where you're told one thing and you believe it must be true, but then here's all this stuff happening that can't make that makes it not true, but it must be true, but it can't be true, but it must be true, but it can't be true. And that's crazy making. And that's the situation that so many staff get into. And you, as, a, as this wonderful, new, naive staff member, you know, oh, but this all makes sense. This all works. This is all how it's supposed to be. And I'm going to write up these reports about how it's not working. Well, then what happened? <laughs> Exactly. The thing is, it's all very logical. Like Scientology isn't, you know, this is something that was described to me when I first joined. It was like, if you go to, you know, Christian church, right, there's the Bible as their main text of belief, right? And there's an element of faith. You have to believe in it or you don't believe in it, you know, and you take what you believe and take what you don't believe. In Scientology, there's no one standing there saying, here's our book of scripture. You either believe it or don't. And you don't, there's no act of faith. It's uh, it's all policies and ideas and, um, you know, techniques and things, you know, try doing this and you'll see that it works. So it's all very kind of fact based in that, you know, it's try this, use this tool and you'll see that it works. If it doesn't work, it doesn't work. Right. What's true for you is true for you. Genuine quote. So there's no one telling you to believe in this or not believe in this. 
So you get in this mindset of everything L. Ron Hubbard wrote, if it's done right, will work because every every little bit that you do read makes logical sense in your mind. Yeah. You know, if this happens, then this happens, or this is happening because of this. Well, yeah, that makes sense. So when you get upset with the church, it's because your your instinct isn't, well, maybe that's because what Aaron Hubbard is a wrote is a load of rubbish and he's just made it up and he has no credibility and he's not a scientist and all the other things he says he was. He's just making it up. That's not in your head. Your head is, well, it's not being done like he said it should be. And that's, that's right. the problem. Exactly. Right? Exactly. And, and it messes you up over time because, you know, having been out of the church for six or eight years or something like that now, I'm still realizing the impact it has in the way your brain thinks and, you know, engages with people. And, you know, a conversation doesn't work the way that it, you'll get, you get taught in Scientology of it being A, B, A, B, you know, reach and withdraw, you know, like a scientific formula of how a conversation happens. Conversations are natural. There's not the science or maths behind it. Like it's just a chat with someone. There's no, do you know what I mean? Absolutely. I do. Absolutely. I do. And this is and this is exactly what I'm talking about. As we can see in hindsight, it becomes a lot clearer. The 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 the, the fuzziness develops, and you can sort of see things more clearly once you get outside of the system. And that's the deceptive nature of it: is you believe so wholeheartedly this thing must work. Look at all these people. Look at all this writing. Look at all these descriptions of this. This simply must work. It makes logical sense. It only makes logical sense because of the way that it was described to you as opposed to what the reality of the system is. And the reality of it is that this is an authoritarian system that is designed to control you. But the wording is so good. This is where L. Ron Hubbard really shined, is the writing and the descriptions of things and the way and the, and the systems that were designed to, that, that, again, appear to make sense until you start really asking the hard questions. And then the system is designed to do exactly what it did to you. So let's go ahead and get to that because you wrote these reports, getting these auditing, trying to make this work. You're not happy with it. You're writing reports about it. What happened? Yeah, so I was, you know, it was a day of uh, normal work as, you know, director of public book sales and was upset because I had this auditing session. I red tagged, which means, you know, you're upset. So he went in the next day to another session um, to try and handle the upset. Um, and yeah, basically just, I wrote to the CS, the case supervisor, the person who overlooks everyone's auditing files. And basically just explained that I'm annoyed and upset because, and I remember writing this, I know and believe that Scientology works. I've seen it work, right? I've seen it help people. And still to this day, I'm not a follower of Scientology. I'm not a Scientologist, but I do believe it does help some people, right? Mm -hmm. There are people who genuinely do get helped by it. And that's a fact. And so I remember writing, I've seen people get helped by it. I've not been, I've been upset by it and I want it to work for me, but right now it isn't. And I don't know what to do right i think something's gone wrong or it's not being applied properly but there's no point in doing you know if i because i remember them saying why don't you just quit and i said well because i want it to work if if it didn't work then i wouldn't be here there'd be no point in carrying on in scientology if i didn't believe it worked mm -hmm. 
but the fact that I am is because I do and I've seen it work and I just think people need to do it properly and people have not been applying it properly. Um, and this ended up going back to the ethics section. And I remember halfway through the day, I was just, I was drawn into an interview, like a meeting in this tiny little room um, with the Der INR, Director of Inspections and Reports, who also had just come back from FLAG, I believe. So he was really highly trained um, mm. and therefore in your mind thinks, well, if anyone knows how to apply ethics properly, it's him because he's been trained at the headquarters and he knows yep. what to do. Um, sits down and basically says that the reason you've got this upset is because you've um, got overts and withholds, right? You've done something against the church or against yourself, or I don't know what it is, um, but you have to kind of like a confessional in Catholicism, right? Get something off your chest. Again, the principle makes sense. If you're wound up about something or you're, you know, upset with yourself, talking to people helps get it off your chest, right? Concept makes sense. But I hadn't done anything against the church and I has I wasn't in the wrong. But I was basically given a piece of paper and said, you're not leaving this room until you write up all of the things that you've done wrong against the church. Um, and once you do that, you'll feel much better and, you know, the whole thing will blow over. But you're not allowed to leave the room until, until you do. Um, and I was like, I was in tears at this point. Again, I was a teenager never been locked in a room before and i remember trying to get up to leave and he put his handle on the door and he was like no no i was not allowed to leave that room until i could come up with something that i had done wrong against the church mm -hmm. um and i genuinely hadn't like i was absolutely fine i think the thing i came up with is so there's a cafe in the like downstairs area of london org and it's kind of just run by staff so there's like a little fridge with snacks and drinks and stuff in it and there's no there's not enough staff to, for it to be staffed so it's just a little tray if you take a can of coke you know you just put you know some money in the tray and i think the thing i ended up coming up with was quite often when i get a can of coke or a slice of cheese or whatever i don't like actually look at how much change i put in there i just know that's probably about enough i don't know how much they want for a thing so you know, sometimes I might end up paying 50p for a can of Coke and sometimes I might pay a pound for a can of Coke. But that means I've done something wrong because those times that I've not paid the right amount, I'm stealing from the church. And that was the thing I came up with that was my wrong. Anyway, yeah. So basically I wasn't allowed to leave until I did this OW write-up. And once I had, um, you know, written something up and given it in, he said, thank you literally didn't even look at it and gave me another piece of paper which was uh, a source of trouble type d declare yeah. which um essentially means that um i am a potential trouble source i'm not a suppressive person um but i'm someone that just apparently tries to get free auditing and free you know scientology and i don't believe in it and um you know we'll see if we can get the report up on the, the screen now i think that might be interesting for people to read um but yeah so i was given this declare and in the same piece of paper the next piece of paper same wad of documents was my staff dismissal saying you have to you know leave staff now i was escorted to my desk where he stood there and waited for me to pack up my things and escorted to the front door and he said see you later and i was told that i'm not allowed to go to any church or do any services 
And um, in order for me to go back to Scientology, I have a return program. So if I ever want to go back to Scientology, all I have to do is the entire basics books and lectures package as extension <laughs> courses, which I worked out because I was interested. If I was to do every single course they want me to do full time, eight hours a day, seven days a week, it would take me three and a half years. There it is. To, enable, to be able to then walk into a church again. Yeah. So after that, I was really hurt and upset about it. And, you know, I've gone through over the last years, ups and downs of thinking, you know, should I go back? I want to, I miss the people and all of this. And it's taken me a long time to come to terms with it and think, look, you don't get kicked out of a church twice <laughs> and read all of these horror stories of abuses and things going on elsewhere. And, you know, that's right. You don't go back to that no. because you realize that you're not the person that you actually are. You know, you, I'm not, I'm a completely different person now. I'm more myself now than I was then because I'm thinking for myself and thinking in my own way. So, it, well, and that's the exact problem is, is that <laughs> for then, right? Cause you were, I'll tell you, I mean, you were thinking too much for yourself then too. Uh, it, it too much, you know, I'm exaggerating. I'm being, I'm being sarcastic and saying that there is no such thing, but, um, but that's the entire point is you were not conforming and you were not going with the flow of the program. And so you were somebody who in Scientology, they have a term for this. It's called a flat ball bearing. Uh, you have ball bearings. They're supposed to be round. They're supposed to keep the machine going. And if you have a flat one in there, the machine breaks. And so Hubbard refers to people who break his system as flat ball bearings. And he also. I remember being really annoyed about this when I was going through the process because uh -huh. all I was doing was writing reports about how things aren't being done right. Like I was, uh -huh. I was applying the technology and that's what they didn't like, right? And I remember I went through this period of being really upset and annoyed about it of like, how can you like. Think of me like this when all I'm trying to do is what you're telling me to do and what LRH says. And, you know, it takes time to get over that and just realize the whole thing's bollocks. But, you know, <laughs> you know, when you're in that mindset, you just genuinely think you're, you're doing the right thing. Oh, very much so. Very much so. But let's go ahead and take a look at this policy really quickly, just mm -hmm. so we're clear with people as to what it was that was used uh, with you. It's, it's a policy letter Hubbard wrote back in 1964 called Policies on Physical Healing, Insanity, and Sources of Trouble. So if you're wondering what are the church's policies on, on healing or the healing arts and insanity and on what are called so-called sources of trouble, this is the policy. And here, and I'm just going to read a little bit from this. Um, policies similar to those regarding physical illness and insanity exist for types of persons who have caused us considerable trouble. These persons can be grouped under sources of trouble, quote unquote. They include, now your, your was a type D, is that right? Type D, yeah. Yeah, okay. So there is, there are, if you've ever heard the term A to J in Scientology, those are, that's a, that's a, a term that's used in Scientology all the time. These are the, where it comes from. There's A, B, C, D, E, all the way up to J, those are the different sources of trouble. So you will be, you will have a written piece of paper 
that declares, that labels you one of these sources of trouble, sometimes multiple. Sometimes you can have multiple. You can be a type A and a type D and a type F, but you just got D. And what is D? Check this out. Responsible for condition cases have been traced back to other causes for their condition too often to be acceptable. In other words, somebody, it's called a responsible for condition case. It's you guys are responsible for how I feel and I feel like shit and your auditing is causing me to feel like this and I'm not okay with that. And Hubbard writes the entire thing off in one line. He says that the causes for that phenomenon have been traced back to other causes for their condition for this to be acceptable. In other words, we're never going to believe you when you tell us that we're the ones making you worse. That's a point of policy here. I'm not misinterpreting. This is how this is. This is exactly what happened with you. By responsible for condition cases is meant the person who insists a book or some auditor is wholly responsible for the terrible condition I am in. Such cases demand unusual favors, free auditing, tremendous efforts on the part of auditors. Review of these cases show that they were in the same or worse condition long before auditing, that they are using a planned campaign to obtain auditing for nothing, that they are not as bad off as they claim, and that their antagonism extends to anyone who seeks to help them, even their own families. That's type D. Oh, it didn't work on you? There's the door. It's interesting because it's so not true. Like, you can see how someone reading that would kind of think, oh, that makes sense. But it doesn't because I was fully into Scientology and I even wrote saying I wanted it to work for me, but it isn't working right now. And he's right in what he says about responsible for conditions. I did say I felt shit because of this auditing session. It made me feel worse. That is true. But the thing is, he turns it into the only reason you're going to say that is because you're doing something wrong or you know, whatever is, well, no, it is true. I, I genuinely believed in Scientology. I signed my seal contract. I was ready to give my life to this thing. And that was my purpose and my meaning in my life. I wasn't just trying to get free auditing. I got free auditing because I was on staff and I was told that that is what would make me feel better about being kicked out. <laughs> exactly. And this policy is in complete contradiction to the policy that I was saying about earlier in that a session is meant to make you feel good and bad auditing can make people feel worse, right? It's it, Technically, he says the only thing that will make auditing make someone feel worse or do damage is if it's not done correctly. So if it's not done correctly and it makes you feel worse, that's a different thing to someone saying, do you know what I mean? Like it's the same oh, thing. If you say it doesn't work, it's a complete contradiction because here he says it's because you're trying to get it for free. And in the other one, he says it's because it's not been done right. That's right. And that's the, see, the bottom line with this is it always comes, this is what I'm talking about with these systemic issues, 
is here you have a legitimate, sincere effort to try to get Scientology to work for you, and you're reporting within its reporting system that it's not working, and their answer to that is, oh, well, it's you. It's your overts. It's your moral transgressions. It's, oh, it's you're just a responsible for case. You're just one of these guys who just wants everything for free, and it's always everybody else's fault, and and that's your problem. And guess what? Our policy says we don't want you around here. Get the hell out. Violating every single promise that you read in the materials that says Scientology is capable of handling anybody about anything. The reactive mind is a thing. We run out these engrams. Everybody's going to be great. You're going to get clear. You're going to get OT. Here's all these wonderful, overblown promises. You come in. You give of your time. You give of your money. You give of your effort. and they shit on you. They just say, oh, well, you know, you're not good enough for us. And there's the door and get the hell out and never darken it again. Mm-hmm. That's crazy. That's that's the double bind I'm talking about. That's that, you know, this, this, this one thing is true, but then this other completely opposite thing is true at the same time. Well, they can't both be true. And trying to reconcile that is what drives people crazy. You know? And I think that's where the real damage is that Scientology does you know we talked at the beginning about the abuses and things you hear about in the states and there not being as many stories in the uk of that so you think well maybe in the uk it's like tamer or it's Mm -hmm. just not being done right in the us but actually when you look at the policies and what it actually is what scientology is at its core that's where the abuse is because it gets you into this mindset of feeling that you know, you're this spiritual being with all this more power than you can ever imagine. You can change the world and you're completely responsible for everything in your environment. That's a great feeling. It empowers you. Great. I feel empowered. I'm in control. But then when it's turned on the flip side by going, well, you're the reason that you're upset with the church. It's not because we, ki- we kicked you out, right? And yeah, that's upset you, but it's your fault that you're upset by that. That's where the damage and the abuse is. And you don't realize it at the time. And it's taken me six, eight years to really come to terms with it and realize how that affects you mentally in the brain because you're, you know, you spend so many hours day in, day out doing all this training and auditing and things, learning that your reactive mind, your emotions, your emotional self is something you want to get rid of because it gets in the way, right? And so you get into this mindset of like, trying to push that away and think, no, I'm going to think rationally. And, you know, I've only realized in the last year the impact that that session, those sessions and that auditing in my time of Scientology has had on on my my way of thinking. Right, exactly. You just, you just elucidated it perfectly. That's exactly the problem uh, at the bottom of this is People get very, very interested in all the overt abuses and the fair gaming and stalking and all the salacious stuff that goes on in Scientology, but they miss the forest for the trees because it takes a deeper look to be able to see this and understand that the structure of what's going on in Scientology with every person going into it is exactly what you just said. It is a denial of the emotional center of a person. It's a denial of emotional intelligence of of uh, who a person actually is and their free will or their self-determinism. It's it's a compliance-creating system. You go with what we tell you to do, 
and look at how free you are because the more we command you around and tell you what to do and the better you comply with it, the more free you are. It's it's crazy making. I can't stress that enough, you know, and this is this is not harped on enough, um, but it is the opposite world that 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 is Scientology. And so um, so it's not just about the written works or Hubbard's, you know, silly smile or broken teeth or, you know, history of throwing people overboard ships. It's so much worse than that. It's so much more insidious. And the lingering effects of it are exactly what you've been dealing with for years, even with a short time of exposure, but a deep one. You went all in. Mm-hmm. Even with that little tiny bit of time, you have an outsized negative effect and consequence of that because it fucks with your head. I don't know any other way to put it. You know. So the thing is, you don't you don't realize at the time. Like like I said earlier, the, the vast majority of Scientologists are genuine nice people that genuinely want to help each other and make the world a better place and you know there's a part of there's a, a an amount of accountability you have to have as well you know my job was director of public book sales i sold you know 200 books a week or something like that on occasion and you know was responsible for every dianetics that was sold in london and malta strangely that was one of our missions don't know why um those are my territories and so every book was that was sold was my stat and that's the way you get people into Scientology. So there is an element of coming to terms with the fact that there are inevitably people who are now Scientologists who are studying, who are in Scientology now, because they bought a book during the time that I was selling them. So I'm responsible for that. And you have to, there's an element of coming to terms with it, but there's not an element too much of guilt because it's not like you did it. They don't do it intentionally to hurt people. Right. That's right. right? That's I wasn't, right. no one is sitting, maybe David Miscavige, today, but no one's sitting there in their church, um, you know, chair, office, thinking, how can we manipulate these people and how can we rip them off and how can we extort them and how can we abuse them? No one's really, it's not, that's not the mindset of a Scientologist, the mindset of this is what L. Ron Hubbard says to do and that is what will help this person. So I'm going to do that because that's the best thing to do. Exactly. Exactly. You no, know, and I think that's a differentiation that isn't made, you know, enough. No, oh, fair enough. I'm, you know, I, uh, I think that the well-intentioned, you know, the the well-meaning of Scientologists is it, it certainly should be acknowledged. It's just that in the same breath, we have to acknowledge that the the path given to those people, as to how you go about helping somebody creates actually it's it, it, it's there's no way to follow l ron hubbard's policies and directives and methods and not be manipulative and not hurt people there's no way to do it quote unquote right you know there's no way to do it in a healthy way because of all the landmines that are that are built into it that are not obvious, that are not, that you become blind to in the course of doing it, you know? And so they're, they don't have to maliciously sit at their desks and, and plan on hurting people, but by the action of applying Scientology procedures, that pain and that abuse is inevitable. 
And that's what we mean by a systemically abusive system, mm. you know, is you can't help but produce bad results. And yet here are these people with the very best of intentions doing that. And that is pure awful. It's just, it's just, there's no other word, you know, it's just, it's tragic. And, and unfortunately this is so, can become so ingrained in people and they can become so sure that these methods and techniques are the right thing to do that they even leave Scientology and continue practicing it outside the bounds of the church and think, oh, well, now I've gotten away from all the horrible stuff. No, you didn't. <laughs> it's all horrible, you know, but it's it takes some digging and it takes some real looking and education to see those things, you know, and you're doing that hard work and uh, that's how we got in touch. And so that's, you know, that's very commendable. And, uh, and it, but it's hard. It is hard work, isn't it? Absolutely. And I think, you know, that's, that's why I wanted to share my story is because, you know, the abuses and things you hear about going on in Scientology and the Sea Org in the US are undoubtedly bad. I'm not saying they're not in any way. They are, you know, horrible things, but you don't hear as much of that happening in the UK, but for it to be abusive is not necessarily, you know, I was locked in a room and told I couldn't leave until I'd written up what I'd done wrong you know, that wasn't what was traumatic. I don't, that didn't affect me too much. You know, mm -hmm. I don't, that's not mm -hmm. a thing. The thing is that I, at that time was upset when I got out of the room eventually, I genuinely thought that that was the right thing for him to have done because that's what LRH said. And I, I think I thanked him because that's what, you know, LRH says you have to do the OW write-up and then you'll feel better. So by keeping me there, he made sure that I did the OW write-up and then supposedly I was meant to put So that's where the trauma is, is how much it gets into your head of the way that you think and the way that you process information. And that's the damage that it does, that's right. you know, long-term right. to people. Exactly. Exactly. Well, Alex, I'm going to move toward wrapping up because we've been uh, we've been at it long yes. enough now, and I think we've touched on some super important points here. Is there anything that we did not touch on that you feel you know we really need to get out there right now that that you want to say? I mean, I've got a ton of crazy stories <laughs> yes. up here that we didn't get into that I'll have to maybe have to do a part two and yeah. share all these fun stories from my time on staff that uh, that will be entertaining, but nothing that's kind of important you know i think the main thing like i said that i want to get out there is that you know people who get sucked into scientology you know anyone can be a victim of scientology anyone can you know you don't have to be stupid or dumb or whatever like that they're literally preying on people who aren't dumb or stupid that do have a head on their shoulders and that's right you know if you know anyone that's in scientology you know the best thing to do to help them is you know, what happened with me is just get you to start thinking about the reality of the policy. You know, does that make sense? In your eyes, yeah, Elrond Hubbard says if you apply the technology, the world will be clear and it's all. But when you see the technology be applied, are you actually seeing the effect of that or are you not? You know, and with your own eyes, you can see, you know, and things start to, to fall apart from that. So There you go. There you go. And well, if there's anyone you. out there that, you know, is going through Scientology and wants to, you know, I'm all ears if anyone wants to speak confidentially or whatever. Great. Excellent. Happy to help. 
<laughs> well, thank you, Alex. And uh, yeah, we're definitely going to do that second episode in the in the not too distant future, so we can go over some of those stories. Because I, you gave me a little rundown on some of them, and I am very interested in hearing some of this. So I think that'll be that'll be it. I think that'll be a funner, maybe a little lighter episode, but that'll be fun. Um, all right, man. Well, again, thank you very much. And folks out there, uh, thank you very much for coming around and listening to us uh, go on at a bad rate here about all of this. I hope that truly, I hope that you know some of what we went into here was educational and informative and not just, uh, you know, not just entertaining because that is really the point of this is why is this group so awful? What is this all about? And why is it that I say, you know, any member of Scientology is actively being coercively controlled and unduly influenced? Why do I say that when they're having a wonderful time, smiles, laughter, it's all great, can't throw enough money at the church? This is why, is because they don't realize what's being done to them yet. You know, it takes, sometimes it takes a while to wake up to this stuff. Fortunately, you know, some people uh, get the boot a little sooner than others. And so, uh, so there you go. All right, folks, I'll see you next week. Bye-bye.